Let's start with a word of prayer, please. Our Father in heaven, indeed we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so at this time, as we learn a little bit more about how you have put things together, we ask that you would open our minds so we can see your fingerprints all over this topic. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Epigenetics. How many of you have studied something about epigenetics before? Okay, most people. Well, then, I guess I might be redundant because we're going to be talking about epigenetics. But let's see uh, how we can deal with this. I have no conflicts of interest and nothing to disclose, so you don't have to be quiet about anything here, right? And what we're going to do is um, more or less talk about things in this manner. As, as Seventh-day Adventists, as clinicians, as, as people, uh, we're called to reason from cause to effect. And epigenetics actually stresses us as we, as we try to stretch into understanding how things get uh, transmitted from one generation to another, to another, to another, as you were hearing before. Uh, epigenetics involves the regulation of gene activity and the expression without the alteration of gene sequences. And we're going to do a little bit of, uh, of kind of basic genetics, and then we'll talk about epigenetics uh, in detail. Uh, we also have something called nutri-epigenetics and microbial epigenetics. And these things show that we have some interaction between not only our own cells and the food and the environment, but also a large internal environment that we have called the gut. We have uh, about 10 times as many gut microbes as we have cells in our bodies. Okay? We're not alone. <laughs> okay. And then we have uh, complex diseases like uh, type 2 diabetes, asthma, some addictions, schizophrenia, inflammatory bowel disease. All of these things show that there's some interaction right, between environmental factors and epigenetic regulation. Now, obviously, one of my biggest challenges was how to distill things down just so it will fit into about 50 minutes. Okay, so um, let's see if, if I was successful or if God uh, was good in, in leading me to which things I need to talk about. Epigenetics and the complementary complex uh, concepts of metabolic imprinting or metabolic programming uh, provide a compelling model for how environmental influences, how environment influences us uh, through development of... Uh, of lifelong, and, uh, lifelong health and health practices, how these things can interact. There's a definite interplay between epigenomics and the human microbiome. Uh, and from conception to the first 1,000 days of life has become uh, now, according to the latest science, that's the very crucial period for things to happen in someone's life. However, as, as you will see, and as you know already, and you heard from the last uh, talk, these things are not set in stone, right? The, the good news about epigenetics is that things can be changed, and we're not just a, uh, a product of our genes, okay? We can actually influence how the genes are expressed, and we can actually influence the genes themselves, even though we're not going to talk much about the influencing of genes per se, Okay? Uh, counsels to parents and teachers, says the Lord bids us to reason from cause to effect, to remember that we are his property and to unite with him in keeping the body pure and holy. And that parents should teach their children to reason from cause to effect. And parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have a part to play in the next and the next and the next generations if time should last. Okay? Now, what do you see in this picture? What do you think the picture represents? What are you supposed to see? Let me ask you that. You're supposed to see an old man's head, okay? And depending upon the, uh, the resolution of the, of the projector, you may or may not see all of the things that are there. I put this up because on the surface, this is supposed to represent a man. That's supposed to be his nose, his mustache, his beard. Uh, he's, he's obviously military, 
and that's supposed to be his right hand with his fingers on his chest. Do you see that? Okay. But that's really not what it is. It's actually a man in here, an older fellow with a hat and a beard. That's his right elbow. This is the top of his shirt. These are his legs, and those are his pants. And this is a woman over here, and this is her skirt. That's her head. Uh, she has uh, something in her arms, maybe a baby. And there's some hay or something like that in the background there. And this is the entrance of a portico going inside. Okay? This is the street, cobblestone type uh, street, and that's a dog that's lying there sleeping. Now, why I put this up is because depending on how you look at things and how, how in-depth you look at things, you can see more and more and more. And for years, the idea was that our genes were these very uh, deterministic types of things that were passed on very rigidly from one generation to the other. And the history of this, as you may or may not know, when Gregor Mendel was uh, first talking about this, people didn't, didn't believe that anyway. It took him a while. And uh, just before his death, there were some papers that were uh, published. And all of a sudden, this became the, the going idea. And that lasted for a long time. As a matter of fact, it even lasted up to about 20 years ago. Right? People uh, believed that uh, Mendelian inheritance or some form of neo-Mendelian inheritance was the way things, things were. However, in 1940, one, uh, one doctor uh, looked at what was going on with the X chromosomes. And we'll talk a little bit about, about that. He looked at what was happening with the X chromosomes and recognized that, uh, that women have X chromosomes too. I don't see anybody here being surprised about that. <laughs> and if women have X chromosomes, how come those X chromosomes don't do anything for the women, but they do so much for the men? Right? So we'll have to look and see how uh, our current thinking is. And we always have to talk in terms of current thinking, because tomorrow something else will be discovered, like in this picture. There's something else that we, we don't see. And God's painting of his creation we're told we're going to learn about this. How long? Through all the ages of eternity. Right? So there's more to see even than what uh, we're going to see now. Now, over the last 14 years or so, there's been a, a, a very interesting incline in the amount of publications uh, dealing with epigenetics. Okay? Uh, this was published in Genetic Engineering and Biotechnology News in 2013. Uh, lots of interest, lots of... You know, it's so interesting. When something becomes uh, in vogue, everybody wants to know something. Everybody wants to do something with it. So there's a lot of research, a lot of funding uh, going into this. And of course, people are looking for ways, not uh, just to find out how things are, but actually looking for ways that they can exploit for therapy and things like that, and especially for the development of, you know what, right? Drugs, okay? How can we develop some drug that will solve some other problem uh, that we have? Time magazine uh, put out this issue saying that epigenetics, DNA isn't everything. There's something beyond genetics, and we're going to see what that is. The new science of epigenetics reveals how your, how your choices you make can change your genes and those of your kids. And they went on to say, you are what your grandmother ate. That's what they said. You're what your grandmother ate. But I had to add and your mother, what your mother ate, okay? And your grandfather, what your grandfather ate. And even your father, what your father ate, your dad's diet may actually affect you. Hmm, all right, we'll see. Now, this we will call a chromosome. This is a little orientation. This is the chromosome. And as you are aware, chromosomes are actually quite long and coiled up into what we, would, uh, what we would call those chromosomes that we see during mitosis or meiosis. It's a long strand. When I was in medical school, uh, when the first was dirt, um, that's how long ago I was in medical school, <laughs> all right? Uh, we, we talked about these proteins here. We talked about them as histones and and it was very nice, you know, you knew the name, they were histones, and, and you just moved on, right? Histones and move on, right? Because the thing that was important were these trends over here, the double helix and DNA, 
right? This was, this was the, big, the big deal. Well, today, there is more research on the histones than there is really on the genes themselves. It was uh, when the Genome Project was, um, was starting in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, uh, the idea was they thought that we had, you know, for, for the human being so complex that we had at least 100,000, if not more, genes in our genome. And then as the project went along, they found that, no, no, it's less than that. So they, they reduced that to 80,000. And, and it was a lot of debate as to how could it be that we have human beings so complex and only maybe 80,000 genes. So that, that doesn't make too much sense and, until they found out that, well, it's probably more like 50,000 genes. Oh, that's, le that's going the wrong direction, guys, okay? There must be something wrong with the way we're doing things. And then it came down to about 30,000 genes, right? And now the latest number is somewhere between 21 and 24,000 genes. That's it, okay? So how is it possible that we have so much information in just these trends? Well, part of the issue is that just as far as we can tell, just about every part of the strand has information. And if you remember from your biochemistry class, you remember that, uh, you know, the, the way the DNA replicates, we have the five prime and three prime, and we do the five prime, three prime, and three prime, five prime, and we say that gives you two strands. Well, here's what we know now. That even the five prime and the three prime, because they're different, both carry information, not just one. Isn't that something? Right? So we end up with having uh, an information coding system that is second to none. All of the information is there. The question is now, how do you, how did God put this together in such a way that not how did he put all the information there? That's a, that's a, that's a topic in itself. But then how does he select which things need to be at any one time? If everybody in the room were to hear everything that's going on in this building at the same time, we would have chaos. We wouldn't understand anything. Is that right? So we have selective listening. We have a way of, of, of eliminating some sounds so that we can hear what we want to hear, right? what we're concentrating on. And this is what has to happen in the development of, uh, of the human being and the cells, okay? Now, we uh, learned in, and, and kids learn this now in, in elementary school, you know, autosomal dominant and autosomal recessive ways of transmitting in the genetic sense. But epigenetics actually is above the genetics. It is what choreographs and, and orchestrates which genes actually get turned on, which ones get turned off, which ones are expressed fully, which ones are only partially expressed, okay? So the issue of gene expression is the, the buzzword of the day when we talk about epigenetics. Now, epigenetics has had multiple definitions over time. In the Cold Spring Harbor uh, epigenetics meeting in 2008, this was the definition they used. An epigenetic trait is a stably heritable phenotype resulting from changes in a chromosome without alterations in the DNA sequence. Now, this flies in the face of what was thought only 30 years before, uh, that you can actually inherit things that did not involve mutations or changes in the DNA sequencing, right? Alterations in the DNA sequence equals mutations, and everybody thought that this was it. You may remember the dogma that, was, that said one gene, one protein, you, some of you remember that? You're too young. <laughs> but it was said one gene, one protein. Well, that, that is just so false. Uh, but we didn't know it at the time when, when people were saying that. One, so while we're going to be talking about epigenetics, and we'll mention a little bit about epigenomics, uh, we need to know that uh, there's even more, as you go down this rabbit hole, there's, there's, there's more and more and more. Because now we know about uh, proteomics, okay, and metabolomics. That is, all of the products of the epigenetics and the genome 
they give proteins, and those proteins can be expressed in different ways, and they get into our metabolism, and they produce a huge number of metabolites. Even one protein under varying circumstances can produce multiple metabolites. So we're talking about, about millions and billions of different uh, biochemical reactions that are occurring, all controlled, okay, as far as we can tell, by the uh, epigenetic mechanisms that actually relate to the expression of the genes in the first place. The epigenetic effects have been known for many years. Uh, in 1961, there was the Leon hypo hypothesis, which was looking at what happened to the X chromosome. Women have X chromosomes. What was going on with them? Uh, and what, what was taught and what we think still is true is that somewhere between the zygote stage and the first few, okay, one or two uh, cell divisions, something happens that determines that the X chromosome will become inactivated, uh, one X chromosome will become inactivated in the, in the female. Now, I think I was, I was uh, speaking incorrectly before. I was saying ladies have X chromosomes. Isn't that what I said? Yeah. Well, yes, they do. And nobody looked at me strange. <laughs> yes, one of the X chromosomes gets, uh, gets um, turned off, so to speak, so that only one X chromosome in the woman is actually expressed. Now, with genomic uh, imprinting, which is that process, it is thought that the material or... Uh, uh, imprint is actually erased with each successive generation in mitotic division, meiotic division. So what happens is uh, we believe that there is something that happens to transmit uh, this, this trait, okay, this epigenetic trait, but then it gets wiped out. And then later on, before the baby is born, there is a reprogramming of, uh, of new epigenetic markers. Okay? The male receives a maternally imprinted and a paternally uh, imprinted chromosome 15, for instance, but will always transmit a paternally imprinted chromosome 15, which means that there is something that's telling males to carry this particular one, not the other one. That's turned off, okay? X, uh, inactivation and genomic imprinting are normal processes. These go on all the time. Much of the recent research has analyzed uh, when the process of epigenetics is altered from normal, and that's what we're going to be looking at. This has involved the study of changes within somatic cells in disease, and it also uh, looks at some of the hereditable things in the germ cells. Okay? Now, one of the ways that we can look at, at how epigenetics works is by, by considering this. Okay? Let's suppose we were to look at the text, John 3, 14 to 20, in the New King James Version, right? And this is how the text would read, and we'd read the whole thing, okay? Uh, we're all familiar with, uh, with this text. And now we will see what happens when we, if, if this is the whole genome, you'll see what happens when we change things by having a different set of epigenetic instructions. What those instructions will do is tell you which words to read, okay? So let's take a look at what that might look like. Let's suppose it did this. The words that you would read, well, first of all, it's a new book here, okay? It's J-O-N, and it's 3-1 in the new version, okay? And it would read something like this, and Mo so loved the world that he is condemned. But he loved darkness rather than light, lest his deeds should be exposed. <laughs> Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't make the full sense of what, we want, what, what God revealed in his word in the first place. So this is an epigenetic phenomenon that has turned off some of those words and has only let you read some. Now imagine if each word were a gene giving you instructions. Then this person with this epigenetic uh, influence 
would only have the things that you just read, you and I just read, okay? If we had a different set of instructions, it might look like this. This is uh, Joel, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, in the King Version, all right? And it says, the serpent in the wilderness should not perish, but be saved. He who in the name of the world loved darkness hates his deeds. It doesn't make too much sense, right? I mean, this is certainly not Bible. But this is what happens when our, our epigenetic phenomena are interpreting and telling which genes to be expressed and which ones to be suppressed. Does that make sense? And this is the effect of epigenetics, okay? Turning on some, turning off others. Evidence suggests that environmental information can be propagated through meiosis. And one very famous study is the studies of the Dutch famine in 1944. The famine uh, during the last two trimesters of, of pregnancy, if a woman was, was in the last two trimesters of pregnancy, uh, and you look at her offspring, 8 to 9% decrease in the child's birth weight. This is a small for gestational age. Offspring of these small for gestational age children tended to be normal size. The offspring tended to be normal size. But if there was famine early in the pregnancy, but not late in the pregnancy, in other words, the woman, she experienced the famine during the early part of her pregnancy, but by the time she was in late pregnancy, the famine had ended and she was now able to eat uh, as she would. The children were of normal size. However, the offspring of those normal-sized children exhibited higher rates of small for gestational age. So here is this woman. She was, uh, she had, she was pregnant during, uh, during the famine. She experienced a problem early in pregnancy, and the child at the end of, uh, of gestation was born normal weight. But the child of that child had something. Now, was it uh, the ghost in the genes? Right? Was it the ghost in the genes? Well, no. It was actually the epigenetics. Women who were pregnant during the 1944 famine in the Netherlands uh, their grandchildren, not only were they unusually small, but some of them were prone to diabetes and obesity. So now here is a child born, grandma had this uh, situation. The child doesn't know anything about it, okay? And the child, as he or she is growing up, finds that, you know, with a little bit of weight, he or she gets diabetes. And so they ask, do you have any family history of diabetes? What do you think the child might say? No. Nobody in the family with diabetes. So they say, well, it's not passed on genetically. Well, that might be so. It's not passed on genetically. But it's passed on nonetheless epigenetically so that this person has risk. Okay? The over... Calix study, it's a retrospective study looking in Sweden. They kept good records. They looked at people who were born in 1890, born in 1905, born in 1920, and assessed the cohorts for access to food during the slow growth period of adolescence, 8 to 10 years for girls, 9 to 12 years for boys. Okay? This was published uh, some years ago to see what the effects of uh, this would be on the children and their children and children's children. When the father was exposed to a famine during his slow growth period, his offspring exhibited protection against cardiovascular causes of death. When the father, in the slow growth period of his development, his adolescence, uh, had less to eat, okay, his offspring was protected against cardiovascular disease as a cause of death. Paternal grandmother exposure to famine also showed a trend, even though it wasn't statistically significant, so that, uh, significant at a 0.5 or less level, 
towards a similar protection in grandchildren. But if the paternal grandfather lived through a famine during his slow growth period, it tended to protect grandchildren as well from diabetes. Okay? Now, if the paternal grandfather had an abundance of food during his slow growth period, here's what happened. The grandchildren of those grandfathers had a fourfold increase in the risk of death from diabetes. So father with, uh, grandfather with plenty, child with diabetes, grandchild with diabetes. One mechanism to explain these results is the transmission of epigenetic markers that were influenced by the environment of the parent. Actually, in this case, the grandparent passed on to the parent and now onto uh, the grandchild. The effect of grandchildren suggests that the markers are maintained through multiple generations. And you saw uh, a discussion about that in the last talk. Okay? This is what was shown in the Overcalix study. Now, I'm going to ask you, how many of you were there when your grandparents uh, were growing up? <laughs> you weren't, okay? By definition, you, you weren't. Most of the time, that doesn't happen, right? Uh, because now, you know, you have uh, young kids who have kids, and their kids have kids young, and so uh, you might be there, but not when they were growing up, really. <laughs> anyway, so how do you know whether you have risk or not? How many of you think that you have really very little metabolic risk because everything was perfect with your mom and dad and your grandparents while you were in utero and while you... Anybody here? Think so? No, okay. Now, when, when I give talks to the public, I sometimes get to this point. And I say, you know, if this is all I told you, that since you weren't there, and since you probably don't think that uh, everything was going right, that you have risk, if I just left it there, that's the end of that. You have risk, and this is what you'll live with for the rest of your life. But the story is so much more beautiful than that. If you think you have risk, now what do you do? Can you do something about it, right? You now have motivation to do something about it because it's not a matter of, of if you will get one of the consequences of what was going on. It's just when you will get one of the consequences. You get the idea, right? So it's, it's a means of being able to help motivate people to think a little bit more closely, to reason from cause to effect, even though they may not have been the one primarily involved in the cause, they are a recipient of what went on in the generations before. So here's mom using, uh, when we talk about uh, epigenetic inheritance, th there's some nomenclature that we use. Uh, mom is the first generation, so she's uh, F1, and then the fetus will be F2, and then the reproductive cells in the fetus, that'll be F3. Okay, so uh, if in subsequent parts I mention F1, F2, F3, this is what we're talking about. So here is mom, and she's smoking, and here's the baby, and, uh, and there are the baby's reproductive organs. You think that smoking will affect what goes on down here? Yeah. Now, before, the idea was this was just a chemical, just a chemical response. Now we know it's not just a chemical response. It actually can manipulate what happens with the genes. Compared with infants of non-smoking mothers, babies born to smokers had alterations in more than 100 gene regions. Okay? Among those affected genes were those linked to fetal development. So the baby, the fetus, doesn't develop the way it should. So another reason to not smoke. Now, I have seen no studies looking at second and third hand smoke, but I would suspect that it would probably over time, we'll find out that this does affect uh, what happens to people who are exposed secondhand or thirdhand. You know what thirdhand is, right? Uh, okay. So fetal development is one. Nicotine addiction was another. And the ability to quit smoking was another. Uh, in this study, they looked at 880, 889 infants 
shortly after delivery. They collected their, their blood and cord blood, and, um, and they looked at the, the differences between the offspring of mothers who reported that they were smokers and those who uh, said that they were not. And they analyzed for methyl groups, just one of several types of epigenetic modif uh, modifications to the DNA. So they were just looking at methyl groups and they found that the methyl or the methylation of, uh, of the DNA was quite different in a hundred, actually a little bit more than a hundred uh, gene regions. Okay, so now let's see what is behind some of that. There are two primary mechanisms. One is through methylation of cytosine nucle nucleotides or, yeah, in the DNA, and the other one is a post-translational modification of the proteins on the histones. Okay? Um, how this happens, uh, I will explain in a little bit more detail, but it usually includes these chemical reactions, acetylation, methylation, and phosphorylation. Acetylation, uh, however, is the one that we uh, that we know most about, uh, some methylation in the histones as well. Okay, third proposed mechanism involve uh, the small interfering RNAs. RNA, by the way, uh, which I don't talk much about here, but RNA is becoming a huge issue now because RNA, uh, you know, in the past people were thinking that RNA is just for, you know, just that the messenger and, you know, that, that, that was how. Well, now we're finding out that RNA itself, there are more RNA produced that are not messengers, okay, that have proteomic activity and also have uh, translational uh, genetic material that just unknown before, right? So RNA is becoming uh, something on its own as, as a molecule to, to reckon with. Methylation of uh, cytosine nucleotides occurs at the CPG dinucleotides. You remember the, the formula? Of, you remember your biochemistry a little bit, right? So uh, that happens there. The main issue is this. As it's associated with attenuation of the expression of nearby genes. So when we have this cytosine methylation on the DNA, it turns off. It attenuates the expression of the genes that are close by. So the more methylation that we get, the more turning off of genes that we get uh, if we're dealing with, uh, with DNA. Then there is histone modification. The histones, of course, are the proteins that organize the genetic material. It used to be said that you know, they were just kind of the, the, the transporters of the genetics. They just were there to hold on to the, uh, to the DNA. Well, now we know not. I, I, I mean, I, uh, there's just so much stuff now about the molecular biology of histones. It's amazing. Uh, they have a high percentage of basic amino acids, which give histones the overall positive charge, and the positively charged amino acids associate with the overall negative charge on the DNA. So that's how they uh, link together and they form these uh, wonderful chains that we see schematically here. When you look at uh, some of the uh, elect scanning electron micrograph uh, um, uh, images, they look very beautiful. This is, of course, a drawing, but uh, they look very beautiful as, as, you, as you see this thing put together. Um, most histone modifications occur on the extended tails of the histone proteins. Modifications uh, influence the association of histones with the DNA and the patterns of gene expression. In other words, they hold on to the, to the genome, uh, to the genes, or to the, uh, the chromosomes. No, that's not right. Hold on to the DNA, okay? and where they're holding on can't be transcribed, okay? So it's only the places that are free that can be transcribed. Uh, the best studied modification is histone acetylation, as I mentioned before. There are two enzyme types that are involved. Uh, one is HAT and HDAC. Uh, the acetylation eliminates the positive charge from the amino acids, and the take-home message is this. It is thought that this changes the chromatin conformation to a form more open to transcription. So the acetylation of the histones lead to expression of the nearby genes, whereas methylation of the DNA leads to attenuation or uh, you know, quieting down of that particular uh, gene or the genes that are nearby. Now, 
for application, some of the hormones, like thyroid hormone that is uh, hydrophob hydrophobic and glucocorticoids, affect the binding at these uh, uh, two enzymes. And there are proposed mechanisms for how these things work for years. Uh, people have been looking at how is it that the thyroid hormone functions in so many different uh, parts of the body uh, to turn on, if you will, metabolic pathways. So we have these tags that are passed from the sperm and from the egg into the zygote, the fertilized egg. One of the ways that we can influence this is through food. Food can give you some substances that are bioactive or uh, bio-epigenetically um, active. Some of the things in the food include choline and betaine and the B vitamins. And these things affect methionine and S-adenosylmethionine, giving you methyl groups. And these methyl groups then can bind onto the DNA to turn off genes, or they can also methylate the histones. Okay? And then we have mom. Mom is pregnant. And mom is eating and drinking. And what she eats and what she drinks affects not only her, but affects the baby. And it affects the baby's baby. So it's F1, F2, and then on the inside, F3. Pregnant females, this was uh, presented in science in 2005. Injecting pregnant rats with a common pesticide caused sperm abnormalities that persisted in the animal's male progeny for at least four generations without any changes in the DNA sequence itself. This was using pesticides. Right? The mechanism is thought to be this. As it goes into mom, it changes the soup that mom has on the inside. We all have soup on the inside, all right? <laughs> that affects then the baby that she's carrying, and it also affects the gametes that are formed on the inside of that baby, right? So we have the progeny and others later on, up to the third and fourth generation. You heard some of that before. Epigenetics have been associated with various kinds of diseases, and you saw some of those uh, um, in the previous talk. Oftentimes, depending on which epigenetic problem, uh, I'm sorry, which, in which period the epigenetic phenomenon occurs will change, actually, the expression of how that disease would look uh, in later life. But dad's diet... Now, who would have thought that dad, what dad is eating, can affect the baby? Well, this was done in animals. Dads who didn't get enough folate to create and maintain their epigenetic marks were more likely to have offspring with birth defects, including craniofacial and musculoskeletal abnormalities. That's dad, okay? What was going on? Genome-wide DNA methylation analysis identified the dysregulation of genes involved in development, chronic disease such as cancer, diabetes, autism, schizophrenia in humans. Okay? In the animals, 4,300 genes are differently expressed in offering placenta, but surprisingly only two of them corresponding to sperm. But the sperm carries markers, as you'll see in a little while. Much more interaction is going on between paternal, maternal, and offspring epigenomes than was, that was thought beforehand, right? What's going on with what went on with dad, what's going on with mom, and what's going on with baby, the interface of all of that is the placenta, right? So there's a lot of placental activity. Epigenetic transmission across generations involves sperm, histone, H3 methylation, and or DNA methylation, and we'll see that. Chronic high-fat diet in fathers programs beta cell dysfunction in female rat offspring. Imagine, dad-induced diabetes. Okay? This, uh, I won't go through all of these graphs, but basically what it's showing 
is that there's higher insulin resistance and uh, dysregulation of glucose control in, in offspring of fathers who were on a high-fat diet among the rats. And they believe that much of this is translated into, into humans. Okay? Now, this one was done actually uh, in humans. Children born to obese dads have different epigenetic markings on their genes for insulin-type growth factor 2. So IGF-2 is different if dad uh, was, um, well, if dad was obese. Okay? Uh, this is important during fetal growth and development. That's IGF-2. Researchers suspect that more than two, it, in the more than two months that it takes for sperm to mature, uh, this is an important window of paternal influence. So, now what does that mean? It means that what dad is doing over the two months before the baby is, is uh, conceived makes a difference. What he's doing for two months before that. What he's doing for two months before that. So dad can't decide, okay, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll go on a diet today and let's conceive tomorrow. <laughs> No, that, that has, to, has to make some plans if he wants to, to do something better. Now, when we look at the state of affairs in life today, especially in the modern world, do you think dad, you think dad in the modern, regular world thinks about what he's eating and doing two months before the baby is conceived? Now, you tell me. No. Not even two hours before. <laughs> <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Listen, there is a benefit to having a stable husband and wife family. Huh? There's benefit to the children that we didn't even suspect before. That it's not just mom who is saying, okay, month to month, I'll wait and see. But dad, two months at a time. It's better if dad were to just live that way all the time. What do you think? Huh? Okay. Paternal obesity. So here's what the LA Times take on this was. <laughs> Certainly folate is not going to be the only contributor to the different methylation patterns, but it's a key find that it's at least contributing. Therefore, they suggested that we take Vegemite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh. No, that would be Vegemite or Marmite or one of those for two months, okay? <laughs> That's the prescription. Two months at eight times. What they found in rats, 30% more birth defects in offspring sired by fathers with low folate levels. Eating high fat and fast food diets may interfere with the use and metabolism of folate compared to those with adequate levels of the vitamin. And this information will be passed on from the father to the embryo with consequences that may be quite serious. This is a reality. Okay. So now, which things we can eat and how do these things affect? Well, here's a list of things. Uh, these names are very nice and they're the, the, the compounds that are involved. But really, I have never gone... No, I have never gone to the store and bought, you know, two pounds of resveratrol. <laughs> have you? <laughs> no. How about genistin? You've gone and bought uh, three pounds? No. What we do is we look at this, all right? So red grapes will give you the resveratrol. Amen? Okay. Now, I'm not trying to say that there aren't some people who will need or may need to take resveratrol in a concentrated you know, capsule or whatever, right? But how about the red grapes? Anybody likes red grapes around here? Oh, I love them. Okay, all right. So red grapes. Uh, this removes acetyl groups from the histones, improving health as shown in lab mice. Okay, and we're assuming that some of this is translated into humans. Genistin, soy and soy products increase methylation, cancer prevention uh, through unknown mechanisms. Uh, sulforaphane. Broccoli. Now, I like broccoli, but, uh, you know, not everybody likes broccoli, but I like broccoli, right? 
increased histone acetylation turning on anti-cancer genes, okay? Uh, butyrate, intestinal dietary fiber fermentation, okay? So it means that our, our gut, our gut microbiome, if it's doing the job that it's supposed to do, if we have good gut bacteria, this will allow for the good kind of fermentation. We have two different kinds of, of fermentation, and this will turn on the protective genes, increase lifespan as seen in laboratory animals. Garlic, okay? Now, they say that garlic is good for the health but bad for the friendships, but, uh, <laughs> but garlic leads to increased histone acetylation, turning on anti-cancer genes as well. The, the uh, MD Anderson Hospital, uh, they were doing some research looking at garlic. They found over 27 different identifiable compounds that are organosulfates, that all of which have anti-cancer activity. Can you imagine that? In one little thing like a garlic, right? Uh, sesame seeds, Brazil nuts, peppers, spinach, they uh, work on the synthesis of S-adenosylmethionine. Uh, Leafy vegetables, sunflower seeds, baker's yeast, methionine, uh, fortified soy milk and other, and other fortified foods give you enough vitamin B12. Uh, as for methionine synthesis, and the list goes on, right? Whole grains, vegetables, nuts, dietary uh, supplement using uh, SAM-E. SAM-E in the food is an unstable compound, so uh, it's not the kind of thing that you'd say, you know, I'm going to eat up this to get more SAM-E. But if you have your Brazil nuts and your uh, pepper, sorry, the, the green peppers and the spinach and sesame seeds, it will synthesize more SAM-E for you uh, normally. Excuse me? Where is meat? I took, I took the meat off because I want people to see that you can get the good stuff from the good stuff, right? You don't have to go and look for, uh, for meat to get the good stuff, right? Uh, and meat carries with it a lot of bad stuff, okay? So wheat, spinach, uh, sugar beets, they contain betaine, breakdown of uh, toxic byproducts of the SAM synthesis, okay? How is that? Amen, amen. amen. Now, the overall effect of maternal diet on the fetus looks something like this. If they have optimal uh, nutrition, that would go to affect the embryo, and we end up with a healthy phenotype. That looks good, right? Now, if we have constrained nutrition, that constrained nutrition, of course, could be uh, overall total nutrition, or it might be uh, constrained nutrition in a particular, a particular uh, nutrient, or a particular set of compounds that the mother doesn't have access to or isn't able to, to work with. Well, that leads to induced epigenetic changes, and then that can lead to disease-inducing environmental cues and metabolic diseases and cardiovascular disease, that is the, uh, the metabolic syndrome type diseases, okay? But if there are no disease inducers, then this can also lead to a good, healthy phenotype. So not having uh, overabundant nutrition, but having an adequate nutrition overall in an environment in which there are no disease inducers, people can, can be healthy. So even if you came through this path, then if you avoid certain things in your environment, okay, or you favor healthy things in your environment, you still can end up with a healthy phenotype. If there's abundant nutrition on the part of the, of the um, during pregnancy, right? This will induce epigenetic changes, and this leads to a different pathway, different set of, uh, of diseases if it's allowed to work its way. If you, had, if you have a disease-inducing environment uh, and the cues that are associated with that, then this would lead more likely to cancer, right? However, if in the environment you have no disease inducers, in other words, this and this, we're talking about something that is dear to us. We call it, what kind of lifestyle? A healthy lifestyle, right? You have a healthy lifestyle, then you can still be healthy despite having these kinds of changes in the past. How is my time? Ten minutes. Okay. So I'm going to go a little bit faster. Okay. Do you know that exercise actually, you knew that, right? You knew that was coming? 
Exercise also affects our, uh, our genome. I'll just read this. A six-month exercise intervention influences the genome-wide DNA methylation pattern in human adipose tissue. Bottom line, exercise is beneficial. It gives us a beneficial epigenetic profile. Thank you very much. That's what God says, right? More people rust out than wear out. So let's wear out a little bit, okay? All right. Sleep. Did you know sleep is involved too? Yeah. Now, I'm talking to doctors and uh, healthcare workers here who, who thrive on not being able to sleep. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. But I'll tell you what, there's a whole body of, uh, of evidence now looking at chronobiology, right? And the biological clocks. I, I, I just couldn't put in a lot of things uh, into this talk. But even the clock proteins okay, that we have in the body, the production of these things are influenced by epigenetic signals. So how mom lived and then how we live can either turn on or turn off these signals that then induce disease or can help reduce the expression of disease. At, at uh, Wildwood, even though people come for things like diabetes and cancer and you know, high blood pressure and strokes and you know, these, these chronic uh, diseases, more than one-third of the people who come, they have a sleep problem. More than one-third. They, they don't even talk about it as a sleep problem. But you know, when we suggest that they get to bed at 9 o'clock at night, that's when it comes out. 9 o'clock? <laughs> Are you kidding me? They can't do that, right? Uh, many of us in this room probably can't do it either. Right? But they talk about it. I, I, I can't do that. And that brings up the conversation, right? How is your sleeping? How are things going? Right? And that leads to, I haven't been able to get a good night's sleep in 15 years, or things like that, people say. Right? So there is an epigenetic link to not sleeping. Okay? But there's also a marker associated with too much sleeping. Okay? So uh, this is one of those things, as with so many others, right? enough but not too much. Right? Uh, low birth weight. If mom has issues during her pregnancy and the baby actually ends up with a low birth weight, there are several adult diseases that are associated with that. Okay? We call this process metabolic programming or metabolic imprinting. This is not the same as genetic imprinting. Basically, what is happening here, we believe, is that during the pregnancy, as the different progenital cells are being developed into the different organs and systems, that if there is a hit uh, nutritionally or environmentally, then that can affect how that organ and how that system will actually be developed. Okay. Now, as it turns out, much of these things happen during the first trimester. The studies show that women usually don't know that they are pregnant right, until about six weeks after they've missed their period. It means that by the time the woman knows that she's pregnant, many of the organ systems have already started their process. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So that by the time she knows, things are already happening that could go, things that can go wrong, some of them are already going wrong. Okay? One more time. If, on the other hand, I'm going to give you two scenarios. If we have a husband and wife in the traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian pattern of one man, one woman, one family, right? If we have this kind of pattern and they are anticipating God's special blessing that she might become pregnant, what are they doing in the home? 
Now, it, this is not about money. It's just about preparation. What is she doing in the home? She's getting ready, right? Husband and wife are getting ready. They're making the nest, okay, for the baby to come. They're anticipating it. Do you know, under such circumstances, pregnancy is not a surprise. <laughs> pregnancy doesn't, you know, the woman isn't going to say, oh, I found out I'm pregnant. No, she is looking forward to it. Do you think she will know that she's pregnant later or earlier? Earlier, right? She'll know earlier. And what would she have been doing anyway, thinking that she wants to get pregnant and, she's, uh, and she and her husband are expecting any time that she might be pregnant? She's making all the preparations. She's taking care of herself. And we're assuming that hubby would have been taking care of himself too, right? Now we know, right? Now, guys, right? Now we know. So that when she finds out, no surprise, how do you think she is emotionally when she finds out she's pregnant? She's happy. And when she's happy, guess what is happening to her hormonal soup? It's all positive, right? This facilitates that baby being developed in a uterus in which the whole environment is now supported. Okay? All right. Now let's change the scenario. It's not that. It's something else. Single woman. Some fling somewhere, right? Do you think she wants to get pregnant? Do you think she's planning uh, in her home? Usually not, okay? She's hoping she didn't get pregnant. And then one day she finds out that she's pregnant. Now what is she going to do? Oh! She's now under stress. And if it's just a regular person in society, she's thinking, should I or shouldn't I? She goes through all kinds of uh, thoughts about what she should do now that she's pregnant. Poison soup. Okay? Not good soup. That child is starting off under, under stressful circumstances. Mom's stress transfers to baby. Baby is born more stressed. Baby has markers, epigenetic markers, that decrease the baby's ability to even handle stress. Okay? And that will be passed on to the baby's baby. Are you following me? One, one, one night stand. Yes. Yes. Okay. So there's an increased tendency to ischemic heart disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes, and dyslipidemia. And they have looked at the different kinds of cells that are involved for the ischemic heart disease, actually myocardial cells. And the ischemic heart disease that is most likely to be associated with low birth weight is congestive heart failure, as opposed to uh, uh, frank MI. Hypertension. They look at what happens to the stress response, and they also look at what happens to the amount of cells of the, the kidney progenitor cells. And those cells, actually, you end up with a lower nephron mass. And that lower nephron mass actually leads to, uh, we believe, hypertension. With type 2 diabetes, there are multiple things that are involved. Part of it is involved with the beta, with the beta cells. The beta cells are not normal. And uh, uh, there's some recent evidence that shows that the programming of the beta cells, the beta cells can actually be programmed to be beta or programmed to be alpha. So the progenital cells are actually non-committed, and they go either uh, beta or alpha. The recent evidence is that depending on how the person, if they have diabetes, how that person uh, takes care of themselves with diabetes, okay, so that if they're living in such a way to be without diabetes, even if they still have the diabetes, those beta cells remain programmed as beta cells. But if they are not under control, okay, the beta cells don't die as it was thought before. The beta cells become deprogrammed and then reprogrammed as alpha cells. So the problem is not just not being able to produce enough insulin it's actually producing more glucagon as well, okay? which is a double hit 
for people who have poorly controlled type 2 diabetes. Uh, this is, this is uh, hot, hot stuff, uh, uh, an area for research and for uh, genetic um, and epigenetic uh, studies. Well, bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, we have such a complex system of the transmission of health or disease from one generation to another. I believe we're only scratching the surface. It's epigenetics today, and if time should last and we're still on this earth next year, we might have something else okay, that has come up that we just overlooked before. But I'll tell you what. The God who made us, he says he has a way that is the best way. Okay? He wants us to live in such a way that we promote good health, even if we don't understand all the ways in which it works. He says that we should prevent, present our bodies as living sacrifices, right? Living, not dead, okay? Living sacrifices. He says there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And he wants us to live happy, healthy lives in service to him, lives of faith, lives that will represent him as we uh, become changed into his likeness and character before he comes back. Okay, thank you very much. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www.amensda.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.